Our first speaker this afternoon in Expo Hall is the founder of a global nonprofit organization that focuses on keeping the family together, protecting the rights of children, and helping millions of people who have been harmed by family breakdown. Dr. Jennifer Morris started the Ruth Institute and travels the world speaking on topics of marriage, family, and human sexuality. She has written numerous books, including a brand new one that's going to come out in a couple of weeks on August 23rd called The Sexual State. Dr. Morris earned her PhD at the University of Rochester and has taught economics at Yale and George Mason Universities. She was named one of the Catholic stars of 2013 on a list that included Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI. Jennifer and her husband are parents of an adopted child, a birth child, a goddaughter, and were foster parents for San Diego County to eight foster children. In 2015, she and her husband relocated to Lake Charles, Louisiana, where the work of the Ruth Institute continues. Please welcome Dr. Jennifer Morse. Thank you. Well, hi, everyone. How are you doing? This is a lot of fun, isn't it? So, um, let me make sure my gizmo works. Okay, my gizmo is working. I live in uh, Louisiana, which is not too awfully far from here, and is not a very big place. Um, however, back in the day, if you will Google North America Map 1750, this is what you will find. That's Louisiana. That big purple blob there, you see that? That's Louisiana. So y'all can be honorary Cajuns, okay? Because that certainly includes y'all. You see what I'm talking about? All of that, okay? All right, so um, uh, what I'd like to do, uh, what happened to my helper? There we are, okay. So the Ruth Institute equips Christians to explain why they believe what they believe about marriage, family, and sexuality. A lot of people know what they're supposed to do, but they don't know why. They can't explain themselves. When somebody pushes you a little bit, you don't know what to say or you don't know what to do. So we're trying to equip people to answer those kinds of questions. So we want invite you to sign up for the Ruth Institute newsletter um, so you can be uh, informed about what we're doing. And I promise you, I'm going to give you more information today than you can handle in one day, okay? Now, this talk, I want to assure you, I want to begin by saying this talk is for adults. So if you purchase this talk and you are listening in your car at home, if you have little ones in the back of your car, please turn this off, pop it out of your CD player, and listen to it some other time. And listen to it for yourself, and you decide when your kids are ready to hear it. But this talk is intended for adult ears, and it's a very important talk because I'm equipping you to help your kids to deal with the things that have to be dealt with. Now, I'm going to start right off with something that's probably bothering everybody, and that is the Cardinal McCarrick situation. Now, I know you're all upset about it, right? Right? Everybody's really upset about it, okay? This situation is moving very quickly. Every day there's some new thing, whether it's Honduras or Chile or whatever it is. So it's very important to stay informed and to stay involved in what's going on. That's why I want you to sign up for the Ruth Newsletter, and that's why I want you periodically to go check out the Ruth Institute Facebook page and also my personal blog, Dr. J's blog, so that you can be informed about it. So let's talk for just a minute about being upset about Cardinal McCarrick. All right, because this is right down the center of the mission of the Ruth Institute is to deal with problems of human sexuality and confused 
gender identity and all those types of things, okay? So this is right in my wheelhouse. I can't ignore it. You guys could ignore it if you want to, but I would recommend you not ignore it. It's very important that the kind of person who comes to the Midwest Catholic Family Conference is the kind of person who's well-informed and paying attention to this kind of thing. I get it that you'd rather not think about it, right? Decent people, trust me, I talk about these things all the time, decent people don't like to talk about sex in public. I know that, right? But the people who don't agree with us have no problem whatsoever talking nonstop. And every time we flinch and go like this, they're going forward. So as adults, and that's why I'm talking to you all as adults, as adults, it's our responsibility to be paying attention to this stuff that we don't necessarily want our kids knowing about. So um, I think for a lot of us, the reason we're, one of the reasons we're upset is we feel like the things we counted on are shifting underneath our feet. We can't trust the clergy, we can't trust the church, we can't trust belief. The things we believed in the church was our solid rock. And that feels like it's in question. It's very upsetting to us. I get that. But I want you to be aware that there are other people who are hurting even more than us. Okay, so, and, and, and you know as adults that when you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others, you actually feel better, right? Don't you feel better, right? So who is suffering more than we are? Well, there are what I would call indirect victims of the uh, clergy sex abuse problem. The indirect victims, I would say, are the innocent clergy. Your wonderful priests who are now under suspicion because of the sins of the hierarchy. And I bet everybody in this room knows priests like that. As a matter of fact, if they're here and you feel like texting them, go ahead and text them and tell them to come on in. Okay, because I'm talking to them and about them. They are victimized and suffering worse than we are. So let's have them in our hearts, right? Whenever we're feeling bad, let's think about them. Then there's the direct victim, the children, the adolescents, the seminarians, the subordinates who are working for corrupt superiors. Those people are in a lot of pain and have had a lot to deal with their whole lives, some of them, all right? So they're hurting worse than we are, so we want to be thinking about them and what we can do for them. Are you with me? Are you with me on that? Okay, so talk about upsetting. This is a photo that was in the New York Times. Did any of you see this photo? Some of you are nodding, you saw this photo. This is a photo. The young man in this photo in the yellow swim trunks is a young man when he was about 13, and he was one of Cardinal McCarrick's victims. That's Cardinal McCarrick, that's Father McCarrick there in the red swim, swim trunks. This photo is out of their family album because Father McCarrick was a friend of the family. And he started abusing this little boy when he was 11 years old. And that went on for 20 years. So I want you to think about that kid. Let's not think about how upset we are. Let's think about him and what we can do for him and people like him. Right? So he volunteered to have this photo put in the New York Times. I didn't make this up. Okay? All right. So the point is we can get something done here. We can do something about this. And why is my timer not working? I don't like the looks of that. Hold on. How much time did I use up already? Seven minutes, okay, good. <laughs> I thought I had that going, sorry, you guys. Okay, we can do something about all of this. Each of, I've got two talks, one today, one tomorrow. Each of those talks is gonna have two parts. First, 
we're gonna, I'm going to give you information. I'm going to give you information that you need for your head so that you know what's going on, so that you're not bamboozled by the media. Because there's a lot of misinformation out there and you need to be equipped to deal with it. All right? So the first half of, of my talk today, my talk tomorrow, the first half is going to be, is something wrong? All right. That's why y'all were looking at me crazy, because you couldn't hear me. What is she talking about? Ah! Okay, can you hear me now? Everybody hear me now? Okay, so both talks, today I'm going to talk about the gender ideology, which includes homosexuality and transgenderism, and the current crop of problems that we have with the predatory priest problem, okay? Uh, I talk about that, we're going to start with information, and then the second part of the talk will be action, things you can do. And you're going to feel better if you can do something, right? Because part of what feels lousy is you feel like you're helpless and you can't get anything done about something that really matters to you. So I'm going to deal, we're going to deal with that and give you something that you can do. We're going to help figure out how we can help the family, your own family, because a lot of you have concerns about particular family members or friends that you know, and then also how you can help the church and the wider community. So first off, let's talk about the gender ideology. The first part of my talk, I'm going to talk about what is the gender ideology. I'm going to define that for you so you can see what the problems are. And the biggest part of the talk is going to be on this question, are people really born gay? Okay, are people actually born gay? And we've got a number of factual claims that are out there in the media that turn out not to be true. All right, so we're going to deal with that. Now, oh, the other thing I should mention to you, when, when this um, sign-up sheet is coming around, it's, it's a green piece of paper, you put your email address on there. I will email these slides to you. I forgot to mention that. I will email all these slides to you, so therefore you will have the references. You don't have to scribble madly right now. You'll be able to have all this information at your fingertips, okay? So this is what we're going to talk about. Are people really born gay? What does the term gay even mean? What causes people to have same-sex attraction? And can people change their patterns of attraction? Now, there are two must-read articles if you're interested in this area at all. There are two things I strongly recommend that you read. One is this um, uh, very large report put out by a magazine called The New Atlantis, which was on sexuality and gender, and it goes through the research in all of this area. So if, this, if you have a particular reason for wanting to know, you need to get that, and I've got the link right there so you can find it. The other is this article. It's just an article from the Federalist uh, website, and it's called, Who are the Rich White Men Institutionalizing Transgender Ideology? And the answer to that question, just to give you a hint, because I'm not going to read it to you right now, but what that really talks about is the pharmaceutical companies. If you um, think you're going to live like another gender, you're going to need hormones your whole life. You're going to need a lot of other stuff your whole life. You're going to need pharmaceutical products your whole life. There are people making money off of this, just not to be put, too blunt, put, put it too bluntly. So you must read that if this issue is of concern to you. <clears throat> so we'll begin by defining what we mean by the sexual revolution. When I talk about the sexual revolution, we talk about it at the Ruth Institute. This is what we mean. We mean a set of three interlocking ideologies that start with this idea. A good and decent society should do three things. The first thing, a good and decent society should separate sex from babies. We should do everything possible to separate sex from babies. You recognize that? That's the contraceptive ideology. You all are complete outliers here, right? You guys, you know you're freaks, right? We're all together because we're freaks. 
we get that sex makes babies and the babies are a good thing and so on and so forth. But you know that the whole world is trying to create, they're trying to create a world where sex doesn't make babies, right? Sex is all about something else. So that's the contraceptive ideology. I'm not going to talk about that in great detail today or tomorrow, but I have a lot of information about it at the Ruth Institute website. The second uh, ideology is that we should separate both sex and babies from marriage. And I call that the divorce ideology. The basic under, uh, underlying idea there is that children are so resilient that they'll be fine no matter what the parents decide to do. Okay? So you recognize that. All right? The divorce ideology takes many forms, not just divorce. It has many different aspects to it, but it all comes back to this idea that kids are so resilient it doesn't matter. And adults can switch out their sex partners at will. And then finally, the third ideology of the sexual revolution is that a good and decent society should do everything possible to wipe out all differences between men and women. Because men and women really are the same. Except those differences that are explicitly chosen by individuals. And we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more in a minute. So this I call the gender ideology, and that's what I'm going to focus on here for the rest of this talk, is the gender ideology, the idea that a decent society, a good society, should wipe out all differences between men and women, okay? Except those that are explicitly chosen by the individuals. Now, I have a book coming out, as was mentioned, I have a book coming out in the middle of August called The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. Um, now, that at this moment is kind of an unfortunate choice of subtitles because the church looks like it's imploding around sexual issues. Oh well, what can you do? Obviously, obviously, I don't mean that every single Catholic is doing, is right all along, okay? Obviously, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that the church's teaching is right and has been right all along. And how do we know that now? Because we have been living against it for 50 years and we've got the data. We got the evidence. We got the goods on these people. Okay? We can see this doesn't work and that you'd be better off if you lived according to the church's teaching. So, oh well, funny subtitle. Now, we created, and these are, back, by the way, my booth, the Ruth Institute booth is like right around the corner over there, okay? So when we're done here, you can go over there and look at the things, and I'll, I'll be there to talk to you and so on and so forth. We created this, this brochure, which I'm just going to mention today, but we'll talk a little bit more about it tomorrow. Do you know a survivor of the sexual revolution? And the answer is, of course, that is a rhetorical question. Everyone knows a survivor of the sexual revolution, right? Um, and we go through 12 different survivors of the sexual revolution, including children of divorce and um, refugees from the hookup culture, refugees from the gay lifestyle. There's a lot of different victims of the sexual revolution that we talk about at the Ruth Institute. And when we, were, when we embarked on this way of looking at things, I said to myself, I don't really want to deal with sex abuse, with people who have been sexually abused. I don't want to deal with that topic because Sexual abuse has been around forever. I can't really, we can't really blame it on the sexual revolution. Um, and besides, I don't want to deal with it because it's icky. Guys, are you awake? What is going on out there? Is it awake? Do you agree sex abuse is icky? Does every, is everybody here eager to deal with sex abuse? No, I'm not either, but I'm dragged into it. Okay, the reason we have to deal with it is because those ideologies I gave you, the contraceptive ideology, divorce ideology, the gender ideology, those ideologies have been creating cover 
for sexual predators. That's what's been going on. That's why you got Harvey Weinstein, who likes girls. That's why you got guys like McCarrick, who like boys. It doesn't matter. People who are wealthy and powerful have cover for using their wealth and power to do whatever they want sexually. And that's what we're dealing with. That's what the Me Too movement is really tapping into, right? All these people who have been abused in some situation or other, um, they're talking about it now, and everybody's saying, oh, gee, that's terrible, that shouldn't have happened, blah, blah, blah. But none of them really want to let go of the underlying ideology that's generating all the problem. None of them want to say, uh, but I give up my pills and my pornography. They're not ready to do that, right? Because they, everybody kind of likes the idea that I'm entitled to sex if I want it on my terms without realizing that that ideology empowers predatory behavior. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? So that's why we have ended up having to deal with it, even though it's icky. You know, it's not a great topic to have to deal with. So... Um, <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit more then about the gender ideology, all right? What is the gender ideology? What do I mean by that? Well, the old school version of the gender ideology is that men and women are identical. Some of you, I'm looking out here, some of you are old enough, you will remember this version of feminism. Men and women are identical, except women are better. Right? Isn't that what we've all been, right? Now, therefore, Therefore, we have to wipe out all differences between men and women that we observe in the culture. That's a moral imperative to wipe out all differences that we see in the culture. That's why we expect little boys to sit still in school, because little girls can sit still in school. That's one of the most evil things we have going on, actually, right? Expecting that to, to be going on. Uh, women are supposed to feel the same way about sex as men feel about sex. That doesn't work. You try to set up your marriage on that basis, that you and your spouse are going to feel the same way about everything all the time. You can't have a marriage on that basis. You know, this is crazy. It's not going to happen. So this idea has caused a lot of problems, and it's been out there for a long time, right? It's been there my whole adult life. So it didn't just sneak up on us, this whole gender ideology thing. It didn't just sneak up on us. But what's happened in our time, like in the last five minutes, the gender ideology has morphed from where we are saying men and women are identical, therefore we ban father-daughter dances. Did you know that? In some public schools, they no longer will have a father-daughter dance because that's considered improper, illegal sexual discrimination, sex, sexual differentiation, okay? So we ban that, but now we're to the point where we're requiring gender-neutral bathrooms where we, where we see no difference at all between a person who actually is a woman and a person who says they're a woman. Okay? Completely self-contradictory, right? It's self-contradictory, and you can see that. So the new gender ideology is that we wipe out all differences between men and women, except those that the individual specifically chooses to embrace. So that gives us the phenomenon of Bruce Jenner. For those of you who don't remember, Bruce Jenner was the 1976 Olympic decathlon winner. That is a male sport, guys. Did y'all know that? That's a male sport. We have Bruce Jenner, 1976, male decathlon Olympic winner, saying he's a woman, and we're all supposed to call him a woman. Now, 
what I want you to notice about this image of Bruce Jenner, which we were all treated to, by the way, no matter how much you seclude yourself from social media or anything, this image came into your face, right? At some point, you all recognize this image. What I want you to know, notice, is the highly stereotypical view of what it means to be a woman. Now, I'm looking out here, and I'm seeing probably 200 women out here, two, three, four hundred women. I don't know how many are out here. I don't see anybody dressed like that. I've been a woman my whole life, and I've never dressed like that. This is what some man thinks it means to be a woman. Okay, if he likes nail polish and the color pink, he's a woman. Okay, this is the worst kind of gender, gender stereotyping. So it's, in that sense, a little crazy, but there is a logic to it, which I'll tell you in a moment. So this is an image that I think of as clueless Bruce. Bruce Jenner literally said, the hardest part about being a woman is figuring out to, what to wear. Really? Really, Bruce? How about childbirth, Bruce? You know, come on, baby. How about the threat of rape, Bruce? Come on. Is that a big thing on your, in your mind, Bruce, the possibility of rape? I mean, come It's crazy, okay? But here's the, th so, here's the thing. The gender ideology is false. It is untrue that men and women are completely interchangeable. Let me give you another example of an incoherence, okay? Back in the day, by the way, back in the day, some of you may remember this, Title IX of the Civil Rights Act was used, it was interpreted to mean that all colleges and high schools had to have an equal number of women and men in sports. Does anybody remember this? Okay, the sports programs had to be equalized. So the schools had to have an equal number of programs for men and for women, and they had to have an equal number of participants of men and women. Never mind that girls are not as interested in sports as boys are. Never mind any of that. So what they did is they went around, they shut down men's wrestling programs, and they redefined dance to be a sport, right? So that they could try to come into compliance with Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. Well now, today, we have a new interpretation, under the Obama administration at least, we have a new interpretation of Title IX, which is that everyone can participate in sports under their preferred gender identity. So that means that a boy who thinks he's a girl can win a, a girl's track meet. And this boy here, on the left, my left, okay, this boy here, won two girls track meets. He won the state championship. Pretty much, you know, a lot of boys could win the girls state track meet, okay? So what does this mean? This means Title IX is being used to end women's sports because that will be the end of girls sports, right? So, and, and this one, this one's even worse. This is a man, this is a man who's now thinks he's a woman and he's a professional boxer. And he literally uh, ended a woman's career in a cage match because he was boxing against a woman. And basically, he, people were paying money to watch a man batter a woman. That's what it amounted to. All right? So it's completely incoherent. Completely incoherent. Now, how does this fit together in people's mind? Whoops, I'm, I'm going, the, going the wrong direction. Here we go. How do these versions of the gender ideology fit together? Both of them, whether you're, whether you're saying men and women are identical, or whether you're saying you can pick what you want to be, and we'll all agree that that's what you are, they're both saying that the body is unimportant. They're both saying that the human body is unimportant and can be transcended 
or change, either through some kind of social reconstruction, or you individually can reconstruct yourself and redefine yourself using some combination of uh, physical technology and the help of law and, uh, and, and society. We'll all go along with your idea that you're really the opposite sex of, of what you were born. Okay? So this is, what the, this is what the gender ideology means in practical terms. Now here's what I want to point out to you, and I'm going to emphasize this a little bit more tomorrow uh, when I talk about the sexual revolution generally. The sexual revolutionaries have in their minds that they are supposed to recreate society according to this fantasy, and I really, I call it, it's a fantasy ideology, that men and women are completely interchangeable except for whatever you want to add in for yourself, okay? This cannot be done. What they want cannot be done, right? Men and women actually are different. It cannot be done. But they think it's a high moral duty to do something that's impossible. What does that mean? They're gonna need an unbelievable amount of power to get it done. They're gonna need an unbelievable amount of propaganda to talk you into it. That is why you feel overwhelmed sometimes by the propaganda that is out there because they've decided that it's necessary to do something that can't be done. That's why the fact that it's impossible and improbable is not bad. From their perspective, you know, we spend all our time saying, this doesn't make sense. This is illogical. This is incorrect. And they go, so? I mean, they don't literally go, so? But in their hearts, they're going, so? Because it's not about the girls in sports. It's not about the issue that it seems to be about. It's about power. If you can make people say Bruce Jenner is a woman, you can make them say anything. And that's what it's really all about. Can you all hear me in the back? Did you hear that? Okay, I whispered a little bit, but you all heard it anyway. Okay, good. Now, I put another item in the, in the, in the slides. When I talk only about the gender ideology, I sometimes talk more about this, but I want you to have this website, access to this website. This is a man called Walt Heyer, who lived as a transgender, who, who is a man, lived as a woman for 12 years, came back to being a man, and he tells his story. He's got a website called Sex Change Regret, and one of the things that comes out of his story is that people are doing sex change operations, they're doing sex change hormones with insufficient psychological screening. You can take that to the bank. If you've got a person in your life who's thinking about this, you know, who's saying, I'm really a girl or I'm really a boy or something like this, and there are kids for whom this is kind of a fad, there's actually a thing now on the internet, it's called rapid onset, uh, rapid onset onset gender dysphoria. And it means some kid has spent a whole lot of time online and has gotten themselves convinced that this is the real truth about themselves. All right? The fact is the medical community is doing these procedures and giving these hormones with insufficient psychological screening to what else is going on in this person's life. In Walt Heyer's case, he had a, a psychological disassociation disorder so he's like in two different places at once kind of a thing. That's because he was sexually abused as a child, both by a grandparent and by an uncle. He was sexually abused. Okay, you got a real problem that needed to be dealt with, and instead somebody's doing surgery and drugs instead of dealing with the actual problem. 
All right, so I just I beg you to be aware of this, that if somebody comes to you with this kind of thing, go to this website. It'll lead you to other places, and hopefully that will be um, of help to you. All right, here's another batch. The next topic of information about the gender ideology is this question of whether people are really born gay. Now, we've got three topics we're going to talk about under that. Before we get to that, I'm going to show you another slide that's going to upset you. Are you ready? Do you remember this headline? Chilean abuse victim. The Pope told me to accept being gay. God made me this way. Do you all remember that headline? Or have you blocked it out of your memory? You don't want to think about it. Okay. And of course, LGBT activists are so excited that Pope Francis is saying, God made you gay. So we're going to deal with this. We're not, I know you're upset. I know this is not fun, but we're going to deal with it. Okay. Now, first of all, we don't know what he actually said. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he meant. And we don't know what this young man heard, the, the sex abuse victim, Juan Carlos Cruz, the sex abuse survivor. We don't know what he heard, whatever the Holy Father said, because the only report we have is what Juan Carlos Cruz reported to us. The Pope didn't tell us what he said. So in this statement that has been attributed to Pope Francis, there is an implied scientific claim. Okay, it, he didn't come out and say, science says this. But in the background of what he's saying, he's kind of channeling um, an idea that's way out there in the culture that everybody kind of takes for granted, that people are born gay. So, just want to ask you, some of you are pre-Vatican II Catholics, I'm, I think, okay? I was taught in my pre-Vatican II Catholic school, the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra on matters of faith and morals. If the Pope tells you who's going to win the World Series, he could be wrong. You don't want to bet on that. That's not what it means. Is the Pope infallible when he makes a scientific claim? No. No. We are not required to believe what the Pope says about science. You know, we're not. Okay? So, let's deal with the scientific claim that's implied in the report of what he said. Is it true that people are born gay? So here are some of the contested questions that are behind that claim that people are born gay. First of all, what does gay even mean? And where does the born gay idea come from in the first place? Well, I can tell you um, part of where it came from because I was there. I was kind of there. I've been involved in these issues since at least 2008. I was in California during the Proposition 8 campaign. You may remember the Proposition 8 campaign was a ballot measure for the California Constitution saying that marriage be shall be between a man and a woman in the state of California. And it was an amendment to the state constitution of California. I was a campaign spokeswoman for that ballot measure. And you may remember, or maybe you don't remember, it won. The people of California voted yes for man-woman marriage. Okay, I just like to point that out to everybody. Okay, everybody thinks California's crazy, but they, you know, they voted yes for man-woman marriage. So what happened was it went through the courts. We lost it in the courts. And this is the first guy we lost it to. This is Judge Vaughn Walker, who was a, court, uh, was a judge in San Francisco. And um, part of the rhetorical strategy behind born gay was the following. If they could show that 
uh, same-sex attraction was an immutable trait, that's legal language, it was an immutable, unchangeable trait, then they could treat it as if it were race, and then all of the anti-discrimination law that we've built up over the years to deal with racial issues could just be swept in and used in this context. Does you see what I mean? So that's why they put so much effort into trying to convince everybody people are born gay, you can't change, it's an immutable trait. If you ask a French person involved in the gay lifestyle, were you born that way, they might look at you like you lost your mind. European homosexual persons do not necessarily think they were all born that way, okay? This is kind of an American thing. And it came about for this reason, right? To, to demonstrate, you know, to, so that they could use and borrow the anti-discrimination law, legal structure that was already in place. Now, if you go and look at the court documents for Proposition 8, which I have done, and you look at the expert witnesses that they brought forward to defend their claims, you will find something very interesting. They have not one person, not one expert, swearing under oath that people are born gay. Not one expert testifying that there's a gay gene. They don't have it. Everybody acted like it was true. Everybody assumed it was true. Right? It's out in the ethos, but it's not true. All right? So let's examine those claims a little bit more carefully. Before we do, let's think of one other useful possibility for that claim, born gay. It could be a pickup line. You know what I'm saying by a pickup line? This is why this is an adults-only talk. Okay, you're <laughs> it's quite possible that a predator, when they're grooming their victim, could say to them, you were born that way. This is your destiny. God made you this way. Come with me. It'll be okay. Is this a good pickup line or what? Yeah, is it possible that Juan Carlos heard that? It's quite possible that he heard that. And so therefore, it might be that he needed to hear something from Pope Francis, right? And he heard what he needed to hear. I don't, I don't know, you don't know. But I'm just saying, this is something for us to think about. That with this whole born gay concept can be used multiple ways. All right, so what do we mean by gay? Now, scientifically, this is very interesting. Very interesting. People have been asking themselves this question for a while. Scientifically, what does it mean to be gay? Could mean, are you attracted to people of the same sex? It could mean, have you had sex with a person of the same sex? It could be, do you identify yourself as a gay or lesbian person? Now, those things are not the same thing, right? They're not the same thing. So there's a study from 1994, classic study. This is a Venn diagram uh, of the people who had answered to one of these things. It's not a very good diagram, but I'll make the point. Uh, it kind of makes the point. Are you attracted to people of the same sex? Men, 6.2% 6, of men said yes, 4.4% of women said yes, I'm attracted to people of the same sex. Have you ever had sex with a person of same sex since puberty? Since puberty, have you ever once had sex with a person of the same sex? 9.1% of men say yes, 4.3% of women said yes. This is 1994. Do you identify yourself as gay or lesbian? In other words, how do you think of yourself? What do you call yourself? 2.8% of men say, yes, I'm gay. 1.4% of women say, yes, I'm a lesbian. Now, the point of this little, uh, this little chart here, this little area here 
is the people who say yes to all three. All right? This little area up here for women, that little dark area, is the people who say yes to all three. Now, my point in saying this is, it's not obvious what's the definition. It's not obvious what the definition is. And a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you're doing medical research, the guys who are doing epidemiology, they're studying transmission of AIDS and STDs and stuff like that, they don't give a rip about a lot of this stuff. They, have, they care about one thing. Have you had sex with a man? How many times? That's all they care. They don't care about your thoughts. They just want to know what you do. So if you look at medical literature, you'll see this acronym MSM, men having sex with men. And that's all it means because that's all they care. They don't care about your fantasy life. You see what I mean? So the term gay doesn't have any well-established meaning. It could also mean, have you had sex exclusively with same-sex partners since puberty? If you do that, the number gets really, really vanishingly small. 0.6%, less than 1% of men, as of 1994, less than 1% of men had had sex exclusively with other males since puberty. And two-tenths of 1% of women had had sex exclusively with other women. So what does this term even mean? Okay, so in here, the, by, by the way, anything that's bright red like this, this is generally your slide that has the reference on it. So when you get it, you can know that that's where you go find the book or the website or whatever. Dr. Lisa Diamond, uh, who's an expert in this area and who, who herself identifies as lesbian, she says there is currently no scientific or popular consensus on the exact constellation of experiences that definitively qualify an individual as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And of course, bisexual is even more ambiguous, right? What, what does it take to go cross the line from being gay to being bisexual and so on and so forth? So that's the point. We don't, know what, we don't know what it means. People use this term, they don't know what it means. Now, an individual person might use the term meaning the following. They might mean that they are same-sex attracted, but they're living a chaste life. They might use the term meaning that. That could, be, that could be some people's experience. We know there are people who are living that way. There are people who might be trying it as a lifestyle. There's a whole thing in some secular colleges called lesbians until graduation, lugs. They call themselves lugs, lesbians until graduation. They're trying it out, see if they like it, see how they feel about it. Or it could be that you, the person lived a gay lifestyle, but they're now not doing that, and they're married to somebody of the opposite sex. Sometimes those people are called ex-gay, okay? But my point is, the term gay has no real meaning, and I strongly recommend that you stop using the term. Say what you really mean. Ask the person, what do you really mean when you're, when you're using this term? Are we talking about your feelings or are you going to go move to the Castro district? You know, what are we really, what are we talking about here? So, second contested question, what is the cause of same-sex attraction or homosexual identification? What causes, and I, you see I've rewritten that question to, to be a little bit more precise, what causes some people to experience same-sex attraction as a prominent part of their personality? Okay. So there's possible causes, genetic, hormonal, developmental, social and cultural influences. I'm going to say just a little bit about each one of these, okay? Genetic causes, we've got a number of studies of identical twins. If it's genetic, identical twins should have the same sexual orientation, right? The twin studies do not show that. They show nothing like 100% convergence. They're the most correct thing to say is inconclusive, okay? Are there hormonal causes? 
there's one form of hormonal cause that's possibly relevant, but all of the others, again, inconclusive. Okay, and this is all in that report that I mentioned, the New Atlantis report, all the references are there. Developmental causes. Now, this is a very interesting point. Development, developmental causes. Prior to, um, back when same-sex attraction was considered a disorder, uh, and it was, in, it was listed as a disorder and so on, people would go to psychiatrists or psychologists for help with their unwanted same-sex attraction. And clinicians, people, in other words, people who, who saw them in their office all the time, they noticed some patterns. And this is what they used to say. They used to say that an absent or abusive father or a domineer, along with a domineering mother, will stunt the development of the male and his sense of, of, uh, of masculinity and his attachment, uh, his, his identity as a man, and then his attraction to women as the other, as the appropriate sexual other. So that there, there was a, a theory of a developmental causal link between certain kind of child, uh, child experiences and uh, the development of same, exclusive same-sex attraction. Clinicians used to say this. They didn't have scientific studies. They didn't claim they did. They just saw this all the time, okay? Now, this theory, <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, has never been actually disproven. It was hooted down. Essentially, it was hooted down. But um, clinicians will still tell you that they see this pattern. Right? And people who work in the courage apostolate will still tell you that they see this pattern amongst themselves and amongst, them, amongst their friends. Here's another possible developmental cause, which is abuse, childhood abuse. This particular data, and there are other data like it, showing that gays and lesbians are, are more likely to have been sexually abused, physically abused during their childhood. Bisexuals also. 1.6 times more likely to have been abused during childhood than children who have an exclusive heterosexual um, orientation. Is this cause and effect? We don't really know for sure. But we can imagine, I think we can imagine uh, how that might go, right? That your development, your sexual development could become fixated on the person that, uh, that you first had sex with, whether it was uh, consensual or not, and that could, that could skew your future sexual development and, and pattern of desires. We could imagine that being true, but again, it's something we're not really allowed to talk about. It's politically incorrect to even talk about that. Um, and, then, and then finally, um, oh, and, and also I should, I should add one more thing here. Um, there is no unified field theory for the development of same-sex attraction. That is, no serious person believes that what you find for men is going to turn out to be the same as what you're going to find for women. Now, everybody who studies this studies it separately. Okay, so if you really thought men and women were interchangeable, you wouldn't be doing that. But everybody knows that it's probably going to be a different answer for why a person, why a man becomes gay and why a woman becomes a lesbian. So I'm just throwing that out there. All right, um, and then there's a pattern. We can't completely explain it, but there's a pattern of social and cultural influences affecting same-sex attraction. So the people who live in urban areas are more likely to have, to have developed uh, same-sex attraction. People hire at more highly educated people. And also parental separation or divorce appears to be correlated with 
being less likely to say you're exclusively heterosexual. So there are a number of these kind of social and cultural influences that we can see are related. So I'm going to read this one quote. I hate to give you a lot of words on a screen like this, but this is a particularly important quote. This is from the American Psychological Association, which is basically a pro-gay organization. But this is what they say. Okay, this is their words, not mine. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. In other words, there's no scientific basis for the born that way claim. This is the APA saying that, not Dr. Morse and the Catholic Church, okay? This is, this is what the leading professional organization is saying. And again, in the New Atlantis report that I alluded to at the beginning, the understanding of sexual orientation as an innate, biologically fixed property of human beings is not supported by scientific evidence. All right. So when the Holy Father suggested that that guy was born that way, he was making a scientific claim that turns out not to be correct. Okay, and that's okay. It's okay for him to say scientific things that turn out not to be correct. Okay, that doesn't harm our charism of infallibility or or what, or what have you. All right. All right. The last the last contested question, and really in a way the most interesting: Do people change? Can people change? And it turns out sexual orientation may be quite fluid over the lifetime for some people. All right, that turns out to be true. There was a study of adolescents done in 1994 and again in 2007. Of the men who were same-sex attracted in 1994, 80% of them identified as exclusively heterosexual by the time they re were resurveyed in 2007. So, and, and, and we don't know why. Did they go to therapy? Did they see Jesus? We don't, we, we, don't, we, find, we don't know why. Okay, but this is just a survey, survey data. Some people change their pattern of sexual attraction. All right, so the whole idea that uh, sexual orientation therapy is, is bad for people or anything like that, that is also not supported by scientific data. So do people change? Well, here's the thing. Once you figure out that we don't even know what gay means, then the idea that people can change whether they're gay or not, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Because gay is a, com you know, what we usually think of as gay, is a combination of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and choices. All right? Identification, how, how you describe yourself, is a decision. You can change that decision. Behavior, how you behave, that's a decision. That can change. I strongly recommend this book by my friend Daniel Matson. It's called Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. And this is a good book for you to, to be aware of if you've got a young person in your life who's struggling with the question of their identity. This is a good thing for them to read. It's, it, it's his spiritual journey uh, along with a lot of factual material as well. So here we are, what you can do to help. All right, we've still got some time here. I threw a lot of information at you. If you hang around with us on Facebook or on, online or whatever, you get a lot more information and you can over time become better informed about this so you don't have to be freaked out every time some new fake study comes up, okay? So what can you do to help? What can you do to help your family and friends, people you know personally, and what can we do to help the church in this really very serious crisis uh, that we're in? So if you've got somebody who says to you, 
Mom, I think I'm gay. All right, we want to think about that. What do you do? First point, do not freak out. Don't freak out, right? You don't want to scare them, you know, with your overreaction or whatever. The first thing you do is ask them, what do they mean? What do you mean by that? Mom, I think I'm gay. What do you, what, what do you mean? Tell me what you mean. I ha I've had somebody say to me, well, you know, I, I like a pretty male face as much as I like a pretty female face. Oh, okay. Uh, have you ever done anything? No, I'm not interested in that. Okay. All right. You don't, the point is you don't know what you're going to get back. So you ask that question, and then you listen to the answer, and you take it from there, right? You take it from there. Now, how can we help? Here's another guy who can help us. This is my friend Robert Oscar Lopez. This is a site, and this is material that is not for kids, and this is why I'm telling all of you. This is a guy who was raised by his mom and her lesbian partner. And uh, he, during the run-up to the gay marriage decision and stuff, he wrote very passionately about what it was like for him to be raised by two women and how much he missed his father and what that gay world was really like for a child. Naturally, he uh, got attacked by a lot of people. He was a tenured English professor at Cal State University, and they ran him out. He lost a tenured position. This is a man who's fluent in multiple languages. I think five modern languages plus Greek and Latin, okay? And they ran him out. He's now teaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where people are a lot more receptive to what he has to say. But the point is, um, he, he went on to um, overcome the same-sex attraction in addition to having all this, uh, you know, kind of history about what it's really like to be raised by a, uh, in, in a, in a same-sex parenting household. He overcame his same-sex attraction, fell in love with a woman, and is married and has two children. So he has made it his business to advise gay men how to get out of the gay lifestyle. So this site is not for everyone. He's, you know, he's a little raw, but it's okay. I mean, he's not saying anything heretical, but it's a little raw. So you look at it. If you've got this going on with somebody that you know and love, take a look at it and see if this is something that you can recommend to them. Okay? And if you've got adults, of course, send the adults to it to, to take a look at it. But he's very specific about what a gay man can do and should do, what the pitfalls are, and all that kind of thing. So it's quite, quite interesting and helpful, I think, for some of you to know about. The final guy I'm going to tell you about is a guy called uh, Joseph Chambra, uh, who has a big internet presence, um, big Facebook following, he is a former gay porn star. Don't send your kids to his site. He doesn't have gay pornography, okay? He doesn't, he's not doing that. What he's doing is telling you what the gay lifestyle is really like. Because see, here's the thing with the whole sexual revolution. They never tell the whole story. See, divorce is about freedom. Hooking up is about fun. They never tell you how miserable you're gonna be afterwards. Right? And same with the whole, everything to do with, with homosexual practice and homosexuality. So Joseph talks about what it's like. He lived in New York. He lived in San Francisco. He did it. He lived it. He got away from it. He is now a very holy guy, if I could say that. He's a, he's a member of Courage. And, I mean, he's been through the mill. This is, this is saint-making stuff, what he did, okay, and what he's doing now. And he's trying to, you know, he's trying to 
help people see what, what the reality is. I'm going to say just two words. Adult diapers. You never see in all of the you know, excitement about how wonderful the gay lifestyle is, you never see that on Monday morning after all the partying is over that a lot of those guys go to the same proctologist and in the proctologist's office, they're all sitting there looking at the guys they were partying with. Okay, I'm not going to get any more explicit than that. But just think, adult diapers, okay? There's a reality here that you never are going to see in anything mainstream, okay? So, and we as adults have to think about it, all right? We have to think about it because this, this is what's being papered over, all right? So with discretion, I recommend this site to you, and that's why I don't want you playing it in the seat in the car with your little kids in the back. Okay, that's really... All right, so how else can we help? Um, I think it's very important to help young people develop a sense of themselves as male and female, to support their, gen their legitimate gender differentiation, to, to say, yeah, there are a lot of ways to be a boy, a lot of ways to be a girl. You don't have to uh, play with dolls and wear frilly dresses to be truly a girl. You, you know, if, you, if, if you're not athletic, that doesn't mean you're somehow not really a boy. You know, we need, to, we need to help our young men and women develop a solid sense of male and female uh, that, that has some flexibility in it, but which, which embraces the basic reality of their bodies. You need to give them space to talk, room to talk about what's going on and what's happened to them, including if there's trauma in their past. And you need to be friends with them. And I tell this to young people all the time when I'm talking to college students. If you've got a chastity club on your campus, let the gay kids be part of it if they want to be part of it, right? Because if you don't, who are they going to talk to? Who are they going to hang out with? So include them in non-sexual fun activities like going fishing or whatever it is, okay? Um, and so think about that. Now, how can we help the church? In the last five to 10 minutes here, how can we help the church? Most of us are ordinary laity. We're not in a position to change the policies and procedures that the church has. I've got an image here of, this is uh, Marjorie, Marjorie Murphy Campbell. She's a canon lawyer. She's on EWTN. She and Raymond Arroyer are going back and forth about what the bishop should do about Cardinal McCarrick and what all the implications are and so on and so forth. They're going on about that. We're not, most of us aren't that, right? We don't have that as our vocation. We, and, and so we're looking around like, what do we do? Well, the problem, they're looking at it at the institutional level, which is important, the institutional level. But the insti if the institution's kind of corrupt, then good people are going to quit. Like we've already seen people resign from the National Review Board that was formed in 2002. They don't have enforcement power. You know, if, if there's bad will or corruption, they, even the institutional solutions are not going to be enough. So I recommend that we change the playing field, we as laity, Leave all that institutional stuff alone. Just set it aside. It's not that it's unimportant, but just don't worry about it for now. With the slow method, S-L-O method. I put a little turtle up here to remind you that it's slow, okay? But what's the S stand for? I'm going to show you what this is an acronym. Who could report abusive situations in the church? Who sees it? Well, of course, there's the victim themselves. And then there are observers. There's people like the housekeepers and the secretaries, maybe other clergy. They see something going on. They don't, know what's, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. What stops them from reporting? Well, they're afraid. And you, if you're reading the stories, you're seeing this all the time. They're afraid of retaliation. The little boy that I showed you the picture of at the beginning of the talk, James, he's called, he just called himself James. There was a nun who said something's wrong. 
and she was sent away, right? And nobody ever found out what happened to that sister. People are afraid of ridicule, and they're afraid of losing their jobs, losing their housing. They're afraid of being unemployed and homeless, okay? And even the clergy are. If, there's a, if there are priests who are dealing with a corrupt bishop or a corrupt religious superior, they can make their lives miserable and maybe even impossible. And there are guys who are being marginalized, completely marginalized uh, for this. So what we need to do is to support. The S stands for support. Support the whistleblowers. Support the victims. Be prepared to provide them with housing and a job and letters of reference and friendship and things like that. Because we can do that, right? If you know a situation, you can do that. You can, give them a you can give them an apartment above your garage or something, you know, right? so that they're not, they don't have to be afraid to tell the truth. By doing this, we change the incentives within which the structure is operating. So in, in other words, if all the victims knew that there was somebody out there who would help them, they'd tell and the thing would get so far out of hand. If the bishops knew that people could be, that, that somebody's going to help them, they couldn't push them so hard. They couldn't push them so far and cover it up as much, okay? So we can change those structures, all right? So that's what S means, is support the whistleblowers. Now I want to talk about the L. What does the L stand for? Well, let's think about James, McCarrick's victim. That, this went on for 20 years. He was 11 years old. He was a little boy. We've got 11-year-old boys running around this place today. And nobody believed him. His parents didn't believe him. His sister found out a couple months ago when he told her, and that was 40 years ago. So the L stands for listen. Listen to the victims and the whistleblowers. What if people had listened to him when he was a little boy? Even if nothing else had changed, his life would have been better, right? He wouldn't have to be so miserable. I mean, think about it. Doesn't that break your mother's heart, all of you? Doesn't that just break your heart? And again, we can listen to people no matter what the bishops are doing. So we created a petition at the Ruth Institute. It's, it's, on our, it's on our Facebook page. And it just says, we believe you, James. And I'm telling him now, I know it's late in the day, but who cares? I want you to go to the Ruth Institute Facebook page, sign our petition to tell this kid, who's now a man, who's now our age, that we're listening and that we're sorry we didn't listen sooner. Now, the thing is, we can make a difference. Some of you know people in your own past, in your own story, where you look, maybe you're looking back on it and thinking, gosh, I wonder if I should have done, if I should have listened. If I, you know. In a room this size, there are probably a lot of stories. Okay? So what we can do as laity is to support the victims and the whistleblowers and listen to them. And we can start doing that right now. We don't need anybody's permission to get that done. Tomorrow, same time, other place, I'll be talking with you about how to defend the family as if your life depended on it. And I'll tell you what that O stands for in the slow method, okay? All right, so come on over to the Ruth booth. We're right around the corner. You can pick up our free brochures. Everything we have over there is free. And uh, you can um, order the sexual state book if you want to. Thank you very much. <coughs>